All right, guys, as we make our way back to our seats, uh, we know it's a little cool in here, but hopefully your bodies will adjust. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Daniel chapter 7. If not, you can follow along on the screen here and or read on your favorite Bible app, whatever you desire. So just a reorientation reminder, we are seeking to learn to follow Jesus more closely in the world through this book of Daniel that believe, believe that God has given his people, not just the people who would have originally lived through it in the old covenant period, but for us as his New Testament church. We believe that we need a vision for what it looks like to live as exiles in the world. An exile is someone who is living in an in a experience of what we might call even for us, even though it may not feel like this, of displacement. And many of us have, have unwittingly at times been assimilated into the culture, believing that our primary, primary citizenship is in the governments or the cultures that we belong. When God tells us that we are a part of a kingdom that is greater than this world, really greater than any place, person, or time. And so uh, as we do at the beginning each week to make sure that we hear all of God's word and emphasize that even more than any interpretation or application that I might give. We're going to read through the whole, whole chapter, and this week, Daniel chapter 7. Read with me. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw, saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on its side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. You maybe weren't prepared to, to hear all that this morning, but let's keep going. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
and to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Then he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Father, we thank you that you have given us uh, such unveilings of our hope. And we pray today, God, that by your spirit you will give us hope in a world that often uh, feels out of control, is often loud, the enemies of our soul and of your kingdom seem to be prevailing. times on a global scale. And so we ask you today, God, to help us to live within our own stories and within your greater story with our eyes on you, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this past week was Halloween, and whether you like it or not, or think it's satanic or fun, uh, help me think about a few minutes about haunted houses and how they work. So what out here. When you think about a haunted house, what is the goal of a haunted house? How does a haunted house work? Talk to me. To scare you? All right. Maybe give me a little more than that. That's true. How does a haunted house seek to scare you? Jump scares? What else? Dress up like weird creatures? 
Suspense. Turn the lights out. Things you can't make sense of. David S. Pumpkins, if you know who that is. Crazy things, right? Anything else? Follow you around? Plays on your fears? And all these things, as we think about a haunted house, it, all, everything you said was true. I mean, that's your experience, so it's true whether I think it is or not. But all of these things, are, I think, are created to give us this sense that this is real. Like we going into it, we know it's not real. We know there's going to be jump scares. We know there's going to be somebody creating suspense. Somebody may be following us around. But a, a good haunted house or any type of contrived experience like this, the goal is to, to help convince, if they can't convince our, our intellect, to convince our bodies and to convince our emotions that this is real, that this is what there is. And there's loud voices. There's surprising jumps. And if we were to think that was real, it would drive us crazy. And that's the goal. To create this moment of panicked insanity. When we think about our real lives, and I think what Daniel is driving at here as he, as he gives us this vision, is if we think that all of the evil around us the sin outside us, the suffering outside us, the sin inside us, the suffering inside of us, if we think that there is all there is, then we are going to lose our minds. This is the goal of the enemy. The world, the flesh, and the devil want us to live with a vision of life that only looks horizontally, that only sees the world on one plane, that only sees the world from one point of view, whether that be world history or whether it be our own personal history. But if we live life just merely based on appearances, merely based on the jumps, the scares, then we're either going to go crazy, sometimes like literally go crazy, or we will compromise. Especially because... The haunted houses that some of us have lived in or may feel like we live in now, or the evil of the world, it's not just a fake jump scare. But we live in a world of real pain and a world of real persecution. Daniel chapter 7, and really Daniel 7 through 13, transition in this book from narrative or storytelling to a, a type of literature, a genre known as apocalyptic. Basically, apocalypse is just, it means an unveiling. And the goal of this, and I'll probably totally dissatisfy some of you in here if you're like here with your prophecy charts, because uh, that's important, but that's not where we're going to focus today, is the goal of apocalypse, or this type of literature in the scripture, is to help us see beyond what we can see. That's how we're to read this type of literature is, God, what are you wanting to reveal or unveil to me that helps me continue to persevere and live in this world that looks, feels like a haunted house at times? Like, I don't know what phone call I'm going to get this afternoon. I don't know what event I'm going to expect or experience. 
These chapters, beginning in Daniel 7, are a picture of how people, kings, and kingdoms will continue to rise up in opposition to the kingdom of God. That it may, and very well, get worse. But in the end, the kingdom of God will win. And in spite of all appearances, even right now, God is on the throne. The whole story of the Bible is the enemy trying to just convince us that there's nothing more to our lives than what meets the eye. And if the enemy can't convince our minds, then just like that haunted house, he wants to convince our emotions and he wants to convince our bodies. Because some of us have a lot of this truth right here, but we're still walking through life, jumping, screaming, overreacting. Just ask my family how I act sometimes. And it's because we believed it here. But the Holy Spirit wants to take this and put it down into our emotions and down into our, our body so that we can actually live in this world without either going crazy or compromising. For us to do this, we must see the crises we experience below from the view of the kingdom above. I think that's what's happening in this. And so the first thing we see here, Daniel is given this apocalyptic revelation of the view from below, and we see it, it's evil out there. It's evil. Verses 1 through 8 give us the, the vision. Verses 15 through 21 give us the interpretation. Now, even if I wanted to give you some big, detailed explanation of the ribs in the bear's mouth represent this, we ain't got time to do that. If you want to talk more about all those things later, you can. But we're going to touch just really briefly. The first thing we see here, there's these four winds stirring the great sea. Likely these four winds, this number four, representing not so much like one, two, three, four, but just this number of completion, the four corners of the earth stirred up in coming out of this sea, which this, this image, this, this picture in the Bible of the sea is a picture of chaos. It's a picture of disorder. And so out of this chaotic sea rises these four beasts. There's a lion with eagle's wings. There's a bear with ribs in its mouth. There's a leopard with four bird wings. One, uh, one person I heard talk about this I'm not even a big NFL fan, but you have the Lions, the Bears, and the Jaguars. That'll make sense to some people. And then there's this terrifying beast that comes last. He has ten horns, and there's this little loud horn that rises up after the ten horns comes up, and he's the worst of the worst, the loudest of the loud. And this little horn plucks up or overturns three of these horns, and he is a terrible, terrifying, some would call a super beast. If you, I had a weird thought, if you ever watched Power Rangers a long time ago, right? All the little guys have fought, right? And then at the end, here comes the big, the big guy. The worst one. In verses 15 through 21, Daniel gives us the interpretation. He's disturbed and he wants it. So in verse 17, we note here, very clearly, these beasts represent kings and kingdoms. And in chapter 2 is of Daniel, we see that kind of, kind of overlapping maybe here. There's different schools of thought. But again, just to, to give you a little bit of your curiosities, uh, maybe questions, is many people think this first kingdom, the lion, would have represented Babylon. The, the second one, the bear, 
would have represented uh, Medo-Persia, or the Medes and Persians. The third would have represented Greece, I think Alexander the Great. And then the terrifying super beast would have represented Rome. And the, the empire that Rome spread and the, just the grip that it had on, in many ways, as far as the known world from that Middle Eastern perspective at the time. And this little horn, they would have said, would have had some association there. But again, the, the, the details are not unimportant, but for the sake of, of our time together today, we'll just focus on the fact that it says here, this persecution, he will wear out the saints. That's a, that's a strong line. Some of you may have grown up in homes where you heard things like this from your mom or dad. I'm going to wear you out. <laughs> if you don't stop that, I'm going to wear you out. When I read that line, that was the first thing I thought of. <laughs> I'm going to wear you out. When I, when I think of, uh, of sports or any type of competition, oftentimes we'll use a phrase, they just got flat wore out. And then some of us might say at the end of a day, I am worn out. And so we need to see here that Daniel, this is why Daniel's tr troubled, right? Even though when he gets the whole thing and we get the whole thing here, it's like, oh wow, no matter what happens, some, it's, God's people are going to get worn out. Again, a lot of debate on who these kingdoms and kings are. Again, even with that last kingdom, some will say, no, that was Greece, not really Rome yet, or some combination of both. But the main point here is that God sees the evil empires, kingdoms and kings, forces and powers of the world, specifically as they attack and assault the people of God. If you have any familiarity with this chapter, you'll know that it's used in the book of Revelation as well as a big backdrop particularly in Revelation 13 where it talks about this beast rising up and the defeat of this beast. And so many people attach this chapter and this little horn to an antichrist figure. And again, it could represent that. That's one possible explanation. It could represent a person. It could represent a political power group. Or in 1 John 2.18, John says this way, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one that denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So however you want to parse out your prophetical position there, there is this spirit and force in the world often embodied by kingdoms or particular people and maybe past. If you, some people I could give you the names think it's certain people in the past. Some people would tell you it's certain people in the present. Some people would tell you it's someone to come in the future. But regardless of how you view that, the main point here is that the prophetic concern is that God's people be prepared for persecution. 
For some of us in here, namely oftentimes for myself, we have no stomach to look evil in the face and call it for what it is. Sadly, there's even been periods in our American culture where we've debated if even there is such a thing as evil. We've not wanted to call things evil. We've not wanted to use the word evil. It disrupts us. It feels judgmental. It feels oppressive. It feels outdated. But it just doesn't work in life to live that way. Part of my story as I took some classes on counseling and wanted to be a better pastor that could help people in the church. And I remember one of these books having to, to read uh, about sexual abuse. And I honestly just had to put the book down. I, 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 any movie that we turn on, you can ask my wife if it has anything to do with kids being hurt or harmed. I just can't deal with it. I'm not saying this is true for you, what I'm about to say, but at least for me, I remember explaining that to my professor and getting quite a rebuke. That there were going to be many people I was called to love and lead that had had experiences far worse than that. I remember her saying to me, that's nothing. I might rather watch Saturday Night Live skits on YouTube indefinitely. Maybe I hope a time for that. But to be God's people in this world means sometimes God opens our eyes to the evil and wickedness all around us. And he wants us to see it. What's going on here is God is the revealer of this to Daniel. You would think, Daniel's probably seeing enough. He's in exile in Babylon. He's living this lonely existence as a follower of Christ. And yet God says, Daniel, I want you to see more. And it doesn't look so good. But the good news about God being the revealer of such pain and suffering, it reminds us that God is also the seer of it. How many of us in here at certain times in our life, we've experienced evil? Or maybe we've, we've, we've experienced some suffering that even if others wanted to see it, we're not yet ready to share it. And we sit in whether uh, this confusion of whether it be guilt or shame or fear, and we're, we, they're so alone, like we, we don't know what to do, and we feel so isolated. We hear these words in Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. They attack me proudly. Sounds like this little horn. Sounds like a, the spirit of Antichrist. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. Their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. They have waited to take my life. For their crime will they escape? And yet verse 8, and this is this we want to get to. 
how does the psalmist have such confidence in God in a world of such slander and attack and pain? He says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I encourage you to go home and read the rest of that chapter. Isn't that amazing? God's put your tears in the bottle. Now again, we're, 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 we're using poetic language here, but however you slice it, this is beautiful. God is willing to look not only at your suffering, but to sit with you in it and to collect your tears. God tells the truth about the world and your world even if no one else will do it and even if you won't do it. He wants us to see it. If we're going to be a people of God on the mission of God, if we're going to love the people in our everyday paths, if we're going to love as missional communities the people that we're sent to serve, then we've got to ask ourselves, where are the tears? Where are their tears? Where of their lack of tears? If we want to grow as individuals, looking into our own lives and our own hearts, we need to say not only about the world, but about ourselves, God, show me what you see. Even if it's not what I want to see, even if it's painful at first, show me what you see. I invite you to come in and disrupt my idols because what I see might undo my ability to control. What I see might undo my ability to gain others' approval. What I see might undo my comfort. What I see might undo, might undo my proving of myself in the world. But show me. Show me the world, show me history, show me myself, show me my neighborhood, show me my co-workers. And help me begin to collect tears with you. Well, we're glad that it is an end there. As we go on, we see in the passage that thankfully Daniel does only see this view from below, but a view from above. Somebody described it well, imagine like a split screen. So this, this type of unveiling apocalyptic literature, it's not, it's not given like mainly if this is Daniel seeing, okay, this happened first, this happened second, but it's like, bam, he's just seeing this picture. And so split screen, one side, the world just going to pot, evil, horrible, wicked things happening. But there's another screen. What's well, on the other screen? Notice verse 9. We see here, as he looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. What a beautiful name that we find in the scriptures for our God. The Ancient of Days. So there's going to be all these other kings that are popping up. History's going to move along. Here's a bad one, here's a worse one. Here's a bad one, here's a worse one. But there's a king who was before all them and a king who will be there after all them. And for the sake of what Daniel's trying to communicate to his people, there is a king even in the presence of them above all them. This is a good name. The Ancient of Days, the Eternal Supreme Sovereign King. 
But is he good? Can we trust him? It says his clothing was white as snow, his hair like pure wool. His throne fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. It speaks to the wisdom of God. This, this white hair. And both the whiteness and the flames also speak to the purity of God. He is holy, he is wise, he is purifying. There is not one blemish in his character. There is not a bad day that he has had or a bad day that he will have. There is not a wrong judgment that he has made or will make. And we see this court that is before him, thousands upon thousands serve him, thousand times ten thousand stand before him. Whether this be the angelic host or the, the people of God to come of all nations, they stand before him and he is the one, as verse 14 tells us, who has a dominion, glory, and a kingdom like none other. And this kingdom comes, though, in those verses 13 and 14, through the coming of one known as the Son of Man. So how will God, the Ancient of Days, defeat, as verses 11 and 12 tell us, this little horn? How will he silence even the loudest of the loudest voices? How will he stop even the most powerful of the powerful to stand against the kingdom of God? Through the Son of Man. Behold with the clouds of heaven. Some say this points to the fact that we're to assume here, infer that the, the Son of Man has this, this status of, of deity, Godness. It could be that. It could be, though, that he's just receiving this heavenly escort because of his exalted state. But either way, the Son of Man is, is one who has been exalted by God. And yet this name points us to the fact that he identifies with humanity. He's presented before the Ancient of Days, verse 13 tells us, and then in verse 14 we see to him was given dominion and glory and power and the kingdom of all the nations to rule forever and ever. It will never pass away. Many as they read this identify though with this next group we see here. So we see the Ancient of Days, we see the Son of Man, but then we see the saints of God. Notice verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So just in case we didn't get it, forever, forever. Verse 26, the saints will sit with the king in judgment, but the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. That is this little horn, this, this, this super beast of the super beast. And then verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms and the whole heaven shall be given to the people 
of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. This is mind-blowing. Somehow in this prophecy we're seeing the, the union of the Son of Man with the saints of God. They're spoken of as one. So we're left to anticipate, will this be the, the people of God that, that prevail as the Son of Man? Or will this be a particular person from God? But the final interpretation of the matter is, is that God reigns, the Son of Man rules, and the saints win. What are God's people to take from this? That if they are going to persevere in this world with neither going crazy nor compromising, then this is the screen that they need to put their focus on. They need to tell the truth about the evil and the pain in the world, but if they're going to persevere, they can't just be really good truth-tellers about that. They've got to be even better seers and truth-tellers and experiencers and trusters of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man and the promise of the saints. There is right emphasis in our current cultures in churches to talk about how we need to do better about telling the truth about our pain and suffering and creating environments and cultures where people can do that. That's a good and right emphasis. We have cards back here that have been recently created to help you do that, that have a list of, of, of just eight core emotions and how we need to learn to, to even know what we feel, to tell the truth about what we feel, and to give that to God. But we cannot stop there. If we get in touch with our emotions without equally or even more so putting emphasis on getting in touch with the person and work of God, then we find, may find ourselves more crazy than we were before. One pastor did this experiment he said 20 years ago on a Sunday morning to preach from Isaiah 6 on the holiness of God. I'm not going to read that text. Many of you are familiar with it, but just it goes like this. It's just Isaiah sees this vision of the throne room of God, another vision, another pro prophetic unveiling, and he sees the, the angels of God saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Isaiah is given this vision because King Uzziah has been thrown off has, been, has died and he is no longer on the throne. Things are uncertain and unclear. But what is it that's going to hold up Isaiah and the people of God in this season of uncertainty? It's a vision of the holiness of God. But his experiment in preaching from this is he was not going to make any practical applications at all. Good preachers make practical applications. That's what I've been trying to do. And will continue to try to do. But he wanted to experiment with this. So he preached on that text. He just lifted up the holiness of God. He said, little did I know in that audience that day was a couple, a husband and a wife, who had just found out that their daughter had been sexually molested for the last three years by trusted relatives. They were now all under medical care, and he was under arrest. So, so you don't misunderstand where I'm going with this. There was necessary medical action that was taking place and necessary legal action that was taking place. Very important. 
and there were also venereal warts. It was the most horrible thing of their wives, of their lives, and they sat there. They came in on the week when there was no application. So he had to sit with that. Three months later, they came to him and said something he said he would never forget. He said, Pastor, these have been the worst months of our lives. And you know what's gotten us through? The vision of God's holiness from last January. It's been the only rock in our lives. We at times may be tempted to think that such things as knowing the holiness, the sovereignty, and the supremacy of God are not practical. That just means that we've only understood them here and not here. Because in a world where everybody can let you down, in a world where the people you should be able to trust the most sometimes hurt you the worst, if you don't have a, a, a channel to dial into on that screen, that shows you a God who is above all things, who is above all things but is for you and is with you, then you will go crazy or you will compromise. So we need many strategies to deal with pain and to learn to tell the truth, medical, legal, psychological. Those things are helpful. Those things are important. But if at the center of above and below and around all of those things is not the holy God, the ancient of days, it will never be enough to give us the wholeness that God has called us to have to persevere in an evil and wicked world. And if we don't see that that kingdom and that sovereign, supreme rule that is with us and for us, even as we see on the other screen, history unfolding in such technicolor pain and suffering, if we don't see that coming on the clouds with the Son of Man, then we will have no one to follow us into that vision. We know who this Son of Man is. I don't have to go there for you, but I'm going to. This was Jesus' favorite name for himself. If you've read in the Gospels and you've wondered, why did Jesus call himself the Son of Man so much? It wasn't by accident. And it wasn't that Jesus was just trying to say, hey, I'm a human like y'all are. He was. But the reason he chose that name was not to say that. The reason he chose that name was to say this. This is who I am. This is what I've come to do. To bring about the kingdom of God that will not be shaken or overturned by the loud, powerful, pain-giving voices of this world. But he surprises us all with how he does it. Because when we read this text, we may think our only way forward is we've just got to, we've got to fight like the world does. We've got to lord it over others like the world does. We've got to fight. We've got to get physical. But we see Jesus taking the form of a servant. We see the Son of Man representing here the people of God. This is why in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament prophecies, it gets confusing. Is it talking about Israel or is it talking about somebody to come? Well, the answer is yes. 
But what Jesus does is he comes into this world and he's the better Adam. But he's also the better Israel. He's the true people of God who stays faithful under the persecution of the nations. And he goes to the cross and on that cross he bears the sin of the world but he also bears the evil curse upon creation. He bears the wicked suffering that we all face. But unlike us who would be swallowed up in that attempt because as we look in the mirror we find the spirit of Antichrist not merely outside of us but in all of us at times where we are seizing control, where we are the ones seeking to manipulate others, where we are the ones seeking to have power and to grasp our own way. But Jesus on the cross and dying for the sin that we deserve is able then to bring us into the kingdom that he delivers. And shockingly, to place upon every one of you in here this morning that are in Christ the designation of saint. If you've ever said, well, I'm no saint. If you are in Christ, sorry, you're wrong. It is a false humility, a, a form of pride for you not to realize that in Christ you are a saint. Just go to the New Testament too. This is how you're addressed. You are a holy one of God. You don't have to perform some miracle at some point in your life to get that designation. The Bible says because of the work Jesus has done, that's who you are. So you can live in this world that might tell you you are just a sufferer. And we are sufferers, but that's not who we are. That's just what's happened to us. In Christ, we are saints. In Christ, we will rule and reign. In Christ, the gospel even now tells us that we are now, right now, already seated with Him in heavenly places. And though the world may kill us, they can never conquer us. But we have to apply this in the now. So the text ends this way, verse 28. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So you might think, well, Daniel, shouldn't you just walk out of here? Yay, we win. Well, so if back to football, if it's lions, bears, jaguars, but not New Orleans. The Saints win. Had to get that in there. But guess what? The game's still got to be played. And guess what? Parts of it, you're going to get wore out. This is why Daniel's still alarmed. Like, okay, it's all well and good to know that we're going to win, but I've still got to live through the getting wore out part. Daniel's anxious. He's alarmed. Because he's got to go through the story. This underlines the point, the purpose of, of our whole time together today in this message. is the only way that we can live through the wearing out until we get to experience the final win that Jesus has already secured. Is we've got to keep our eyes above and not just below.
Paul said it this way to the Colossians in Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above, not on things below. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Because it's going to feel really out of control. You're going to get wore out. But remember, you're not alone. I got wore out. wore out I got wore out for you so you can know when you're getting wore out I'm with you I'm with you I like Halloween that may make you not like me anymore but uh, I think it's fun to dress up I don't sacrifice goats to demons if you wonder but uh how, even October 31st is a good illustration of two ways to look at the world. So there, we know October 31st is Halloween, but October 31st also is, is something for, I guess, maybe some of us more nerdy folk, but I'd hopefully be good for all of us, Reformation Day. It was a day when an imperfect monk named Martin Luther stood in the face of an evil state government that at least I would say at that time carried within it the spirit of Antichrist, at least in some of its power structures, seeking to silence the word of God and eliminate anyone who would stand for the people of God. In that season, he wrote a hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I just want to read these words before we go to the Lord's table. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills, prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, armed with cruel hate, and on earth is not as equal. We're just no match. And though this world with devil's field should threaten to adude us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Saints of God, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, he will be destroyed. One little word shall fail him. What is that little word? That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Father, we thank you for giving us a vision of the victory that you bring through your son Jesus, the son of man. And as we come to your table now, may we taste and see that victory that is ours in him, in whose name we pray. Amen.